Welcome to the Living a Nordic Life podcast, where we explore a simpler, cozier and more intentional life the Nordic way. I'm Fiona McKinna, your Nordic Living Guide and founder of Living a Nordic Life, where I share all things Nordic living and show you that a Nordic life is the way to bring intentional calm and healthy habits into your own life, wherever you are in the world. Are you looking for ways to bring simplicity, coziness and calm into your life? Well, let me show you how. Visit the Living a Nordic Life website to explore how I can help you on your journey to simple, healthy and happy calm, the Nordic way. You can subscribe to the podcast right here. And if you want regular inspirational emails sent with love from Norway and straight to your inbox, don't forget to subscribe to the Living a Nordic Life newsletters. And so now let's dive into our episode. Hi, and welcome to this episode. And I want to talk to you about something that you might necessarily think of as something particularly Nordic, but it is very much a hobby that is embraced with an awful lot of enthusiasm here, and that is gardening. And specifically, I want to talk to you about gardening for wildlife. It's quite important. And last year, 2022, I joined a small environmental movement in Norway. And I'm not normally one for joining big environmental movements, I have to say. I like to just get on quietly with things myself. But this one spoke to me for some reason, and because it was something that we already did in part, and I wanted to expand a bit on that. And it was the World Wildlife Fund Pledge for Nature. And it was a pledge to leave a certain amount of space in your garden for wildlife. So basically something that was unmowed or untouched and just left to go wild a bit. Not crazy, but, you know, a little bit wild. And the idea was to allow native plants to grow, specifically native plants, and not to mow and to let the space become wild. Every member pledged a few square metres of their garden to become wild. And Norway racked up about 970,000 square metres. And it's a lot, isn't it? And actually, I noticed as I was driving about that there were a lot of really beautiful wild spaces left. There were big spaces in people's front lawns and small fields that they had that they obviously weren't using that had been left for wildflowers. And by the time we got to July, it looked amazing. And I think people must be doing the same thing again this year because the wildflower seeds are just empty in every shop. It's impossible to get them. It's like hen's teeth. We really have trouble getting them. When you, when you find them, you buy like 10 packets because they're becoming so rare. But actually, I'm going to start to harvest my own seeds this year. I did it a little bit last year with some poppies, but I'm going to really embrace it this year. But Scandinavian gardens on the whole tend to be more on the wild side. They're not quite as groomed as, say, an English garden. They're rarely formal, unless you're at a stately home. And native plants and trees are hugely popular. They're popular in the garden centres. But gardens tend to flow from being the garden to nature or the next space, for example, the forest. It's difficult to see where the garden ends and wild starts. And the borders are very much like that. Everybody knows where their border is, but it's very much like that. 
and they tend to blend. And big fences and hedges are quite often avoided, I have to say. We're also really lucky with our local municipality's management of roadside vergers. Vergers are usually left to grow without constant mowing and pesticides are rarely, if ever, used. So those areas become havens for insects and wild animals that love the abundance of plants and flowers from April to October. The local communes will go and mow around the road signs and they'll mow the corners so that you can see to turn out, but everything else is left. Brilliant. Saves a lot of money. Saves money on labour. But also, it's this haven for wildlife and it's that kind of corridor for wildlife between the fields that are managed and roads. But Andre, my partner and I, have a reasonable amount of space to dedicate to gardening. And our garden has evolved over the years to include practical areas like our barbecue patio and places where we like to sit, our chicken coop and chicken enclosure that take up a bit of space, and also our vegetable patches. But we also have less formal areas that we leave alone completely. And I've had my fair share of very small gardens. In England, the gardens tend to be postage stamp sized. They are absolutely microscopic. And if you live in an old Victorian terraced house, you know, in a row, then you might just have a very small patch of garden at the back if you're lucky. But I can confidently tell you that even with a tiny space, we can still pledge some space to wildlife. It is possible. So I want to show you how I do that here in Norway and how you could too, with just a few small actions that will benefit the environment and your garden. You'd be surprised how much it will benefit your garden. You don't want it to be sterile. The first thing is to leave a little bit of space unmowed. That's what we've just talked about. So if you have grass, or even if you don't, leaving a small amount unmowed and without pesticides and fertilisers, unfiddled with. It might look a bit scratty at first, but it'll grow. It'll be fine. And it's the easiest, cheapest and least labour intensive way of welcoming wildlife into your garden. Even the smallest space can make a difference to the insects in your garden. And what you see as a weed is an insect's food plant. Something like nettles or thistles, which you might find really irritating and you want them out. They're an important food plant for a lot of butterflies and moths and it's worth leaving them. All you need to do is not mow and let the native plants take hold. If you have a space of bare soil that you want to use, then you can find packets of native wildflower seeds, like I was telling you about. And you can buy those online and you can sow them in the space. Literally just sprinkle them, rake them in and give them a water. Make sure you water them every day or every couple of days. And be sure to check that they are native for your region. Remember that the plants that you think of as weeds are often those that occur naturally in your area. So you could just leave it to get on with it. Hang some bird boxes. <clears throat> now, most of us have a bird box or two in the garden. And there's something very rewarding about seeing your bird box being used when you see that in the spring and that first bird is looking in. You know, it's like they're going around looking at the real estate, isn't it? It's brilliant. We like to hang ours a little bit lower so that Mia can be lifted up to look in. And the birds are very tolerant, I have to say. We have some very tolerant nesting great tits that are on our side of our bin shed in a bright blue nest box. Although I don't think, don't think birds see the same colours as us. But it's really, really vivid. And it's low enough down for Mia to go and have a look. And they come back every year. They just don't care. I mean, they get a bit cross if we're there for too long and they stop squawking at us. 
and then we move away. <clears throat> but provided we don't fiddle around too much, they don't mind us looking inside and it's really rewarding to have the birds around. And if you're gardening for food, so if you're growing vegetables and things like that, things like great tits and the sparrows are really good at keeping the pests away. The sparrows are constantly around my vegetable patch and they've cleared away all the green fly and any kind of pests that we have. I love it. So I'm going to actively encourage them. Limit or eliminate your use of pesticides. Now, this is probably a no-brainer for most people. What we often consider weeds are vital for insects and wildlife. We take dandelions, for example. They're some of the earliest flowers to bloom in the spring, and they're crucial as a source of nectar for early emerging insects like bumblebees that might have been hibernating, and some of the butterflies as well, because there are some butterflies that come out early enough to need to have nectar from things like dandelions. And if you take a good look at a dandelion flower, you'll see just how beautiful they are, especially the big ones. They're like a small chrysanthemum. They're in the same family as, as chrysanthemums, after all. And if the weeds truly annoy you, you could try digging them up rather than using weed killers, rather than spraying a weed killer on it. Get out there and dig it up. You're spending a bit of time outside as well. Really good for you. Provide insect hotels. Now, we started doing this a few years ago, and I was, actually, they've had so much use that they're falling apart. I think they need a bit of a renovation. But insects do need to overwinter in safe and warm places. Even if you're in a warmer environment, you know, they still need to get away from things. And that is often why we find them inside our homes in the spring as the weather warms up. Insect hotels are about the size of a bird box, although you can get bigger ones, and you can make them yourself. They're really easy to make. And they've got lots of little hotels and little spaces for different insects to seek refuge. We've made one with pine cones, which the insects can get into, but they like bamboo cut into bits. That's great for bumblebees. And maybe a little area with some straw shoved in it so that smaller insects can go in there and hide. You probably won't actually see the insects inside, but you may see the small holes filled as solitary bees create their own little doors. It's fantastic. And then you'll see the door disappear as the bee eats its way out to come out. Log piles. Now, surprisingly, our region of Norway has quite a few snakes and reptiles. Don't think of that, do you, in Norway? But we do. We have only one venomous species, the adder. But they all balance the ecosystem and they're a vital part of any environment. You remove that and then you start to get a problem. And we also find that they do a very nice job of keeping the mouse population down. Certainly in our garden. I'll tell you a mouse story, actually. It's a really funny one. It happened a few years ago. We hadn't at that time we hadn't been putting log piles out very much and hadn't really been embracing it but we have these years where we have a lot of snakes and no mice obviously and then there'll be a few years where we'll have a lot of mice and not very many snakes <laughs> so you can imagine and as we live in a rural part of Norway and we live in a wooden house there's a lot of wildlife around and we do get mice on occasion and as the weather gets really cold they try to come inside and they do it with everybody. You find them all over the place in your bin shed, your garage, anywhere in log piles. We even had one go into the fan underneath our car on one occasion. But we do very occasionally get them coming into the house. And we were congratulating ourselves that we hadn't had any mice. But we had this particularly cold spell. And 
we have a cupboard that is just at the bottom of our stairs and it's kind of in a recess and we keep all sorts of junk in there, like things that you might need in a hurry, like screwdrivers and doorknobs and wood glue and stuff like that. And one evening, Andre was raking around in this cupboard looking for something and suddenly slammed the door and said, there's a mouse. I was like, no. And we couldn't figure out how the mouse had come in because the cupboard was completely sealed and sort of in the centre of the house as well. So how had the mouse even got in there? We hadn't had any mice. So we didn't want to open the door because we knew the mouse would come out. So I had this brilliant idea that what we would do is we would get a plastic box, like an ice cream carton, and we would take everything out of the cupboard where the mouse was. And then I would just pop the box over the top of the mouse and slide a piece of paper under it, take the mouse out. We'd take it outside and release it into the wild a bit like you do a spider. Could go wrong. <laughs> so we took everything out of the cupboard and I went to put the plastic box over the mouse. But as soon as the mouse saw the plastic box coming, it had other ideas. And it leapt out of the cupboard onto my shoulder. Yes, <laughs> actually did that. And then down the stairs and ran across the hall and went behind a bookcase. So we were like, no, this cannot be happening. We can't leave it because then it's got a free run of the house and we will never catch the thing. Or we might catch the thing, but we won't catch it today. So we went and got a torch and we were looking behind the bookcase. Where is it? It was there. It was just behind the bookcase. And at this point, I remembered that I'd been colouring my hair, which I did at the time. I don't do anymore. But I had been colouring my hair and it had been on, the hair colour with all this distraction, had been on long enough for it to go really brassy colour and probably long enough for it to start breaking off at the roots and certainly longer than they recommended for it to be on. So I said to Andre, I'll go upstairs and I'll quickly wash my hair. It'll take me five minutes, literally. I'll wash my hair. I'll come back down. You stand there and you watch that mouse. I don't want it going anywhere else. Yes, yes, he could do that. I could just go. So I went and washed my hair. I was literally five minutes. Came back down into the hall. No Andre. He's standing in the lounge with a slice of bread and jam watching TV. So I said to him, I, where's the mouse? Are you watching the mouse? Yeah, yeah, the mouse will be there. No problem. You know, let's go and have a look for it. Went and had a look and, of course, where was the mouse? Gone. So we scoured the lounge. The only place it could have gone is into the lounge or the dining room. So we scoured the lounge and the dining room with a torch, looking everywhere. Couldn't find the mouse at all. So I had another brilliant idea. I was full of brilliant ideas that night. I had another brilliant idea, and that was if we turned everything off and we sat in the dark, in silence, the mouse would think that we had gone and it would come out and we could trace it by its scuffling. So we turned everything off, all the lights, the TV, everything. And we sat in the lounge, in silence, in the dark for 20 minutes. But we'd seriously underestimated the mouse because it also sat in the dark, in silence for 20 minutes. And we had no idea where it was. So we knew that we couldn't leave it and it was getting later as well. We went back to see if the mouse had actually gone back under the bookcase and there it was behind the bookcase standing on a skirting board. Andre went and got this long tape measure thing that we have that kind of extends and it's stiff. So he thought he could just kind of poke it behind the bookcase where the mouse was and sort of winkle the mouse out with it. But every time he poked it at the mouse, the mouse stepped really delicately onto the tape measure and then as he moved the tape measure to try to get the mouse out, he stepped back onto the skirting board. 
And we did this about five times until we were really exasperated. And I said, look, the only way we can do it is we have to somehow filter the mouse out through the door. And it's obviously not scared of us, so we've got to make some kind of noise. So we created this kind of corral out of books and had the front door open and the mudroom door open in the hopes that the mouse wouldn't jump. It would run along this sort of racing track type thing and out through the front door. We went round the other side of the bookcase and we made so much racket. It terrified the mouse. And it came running out of the bookcase, ran along our racing track. What? Straight out through the mudroom and out through the front door. And after that, <laughs> drama and excitement, we decided that we really needed to embrace this whole log pile thing to encourage the snakes. And that's how we encourage them into our garden. And hopefully we keep them away from other areas, but they do seem to like log piles and piles of stones. And it's taken a few years, I have to say. But last year we noticed that we had a lot more snakes. We had This year I've noticed that we've had a venomous one in the garden, but very small. But we also had a lot of grass snakes, which are not venomous and they're very shy, but they do eat the mice. And it's kept the mouse population down considerably. It's fantastic. And they're very shy animals, snakes. So the chance of seeing one is quite remote. They want to get away from you. If you live in an area where there's a lot of venomous snakes, like Australia, then you might want to think twice. But for us in Europe, this is really effective. But also the little holes, they play a part for reptiles and toads as well. We have a lot of toads in the garden. And toads are great for keeping away pests like slugs. But they also play host to beetle grubs. As the log pile starts to rot away, you get a lot of beetle grubs in there. That's really useful too. So talking about toads and reptiles, this is another thing that we've put in the garden. Toads and reptile homes. Some reason, they always bring to mind to me Beatrix Potter stories where the little animals live in these adorable homes made inside the roots of trees or upturned plant pots. And if you have a cracked plant pot or two, don't throw it away, but turn it upside down and put it somewhere out of the way as a home for toads. They'll like it if it's big enough, unless you've got very big toads. Some of ours are very big, actually, and they wouldn't get inside a plant pot. In fact, they don't get inside some of the big plant pots, but the smaller ones will. You might not like the sound of encouraging toads, but you rarely catch sight of them in the daylight hours, and they love slugs, which is a wonderful way of naturally keeping the pests down, because that's what we're talking about, isn't it? Gardening for wildlife, but also it can help us. Now, one of my favourite things for wildlife is the compost heap. I've got two compost heaps, and I'd love to have more, as ours do fill up quite quickly, I have to say, and I try to turn them over as quickly as I can. But even a small one can make a huge amount of difference. Not only are you getting rid of organic waste from the garden and from your kitchen as well, because you can put vegetable scraps in there, but you're also providing a miniature world, this tiny ecosystem for insects, bacteria, mushrooms, worms, and you're doing your garden some good. And if you want to have a look at what my compost heap is like, if you need some visuals with any of this, I'm going to put a link in the bottom of here so that you can go onto my blog and you can have a little look at the sort of things that we do. But compost heaps, if that's the only thing you do, then that's brilliant. 
They get absolutely full of worms. The compost can be used again on your garden. And it's this lovely circle of things that is really beneficial. And my last point is to try to garden in a more natural way. And for most gardeners, I think this is something that we do without much thought, really. We follow the seasons because we have to. We don't have very much choice, do we? As much as we would like things to be in flower before they should be. But, you know, and we prune when the plants need it. And it has the least effect on their growth if we do that. You know, it's beneficial for them. However, sometimes it's tempting to cut things back and to prune hard simply because we want to. And we have an idea of a style we're trying to achieve. And this can have a damaging effect on the wildlife as well, like nesting birds and caterpillars. Which is why there's this movement, this no-mo-may movement, to allow the insects to really establish themselves in May before we start mowing the grass too low. So carefully consider these things before you start rushing in and pruning things back or cutting the hedge, for example, when there are birds nesting in it. And another idea is to incorporate natural areas into your garden, like a stumpery. Now, I started doing this, I think it was the year before last I started this. I really liked the idea of it. Some, something a little bit architectural, but very natural. And I have a space in the garden where nothing much seems to grow because it's shady. And it's underneath a pine tree as well, so it's not the soil's probably not ideal. But my hostas love it there. They go mad. And I have things like a lot of ferns growing there as well. And wood anemones, which again are something that grows wild here, but they look lovely in the garden. And violets. But I wanted to make it a little bit different. So I went out and I found some old stumps, just stumps that kind of been, you know, dug up and they're going to be thrown away. But they're, they're big and they're architectural and they add a bit of structure to the garden, but they also are somewhere for things to hide. They're somewhere that something that will start to decompose. So the beetle grubs and other insects will love them. And there's something for other animals to go looking for insects. But it adds a bit of interest. And a small area can be turned into a stump. You really only need one stump. But it will add a certain interest to the garden as well. I had the idea, actually, from an edition of Country Living magazine, English Country Living. I think I don't think it's called English Country Living, but it's the British version. And it was this amazing stumpery. It was huge. It was nothing like mine. Mine is tiny. But I thought it was fun. And it's fun using old stumps for these architectural touches interspersed with some natural planting of native plants. And you get this beautiful, free-flowing area to your garden. <clears throat> so... I hope I've given you a few ideas to garden with wildlife. And remember that even the smallest action, even the tiny action, can make a difference. Even planting some native wildflowers in a pot on your doorstep or your windowsill is a step in the right direction. So I hope you're going to give it a go, and I've inspired you a little bit. And I will see you in the next episode. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the Living a Nordic Life newsletters so you can get an email when I release a new episode. It's a quick and easy way to keep up with all things Nordic living. Please visit livingandnordiclife.com. You can listen to Living a Nordic Life on lots of podcast apps, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and plenty of others. If you've enjoyed the Living a Nordic Life podcast, why not leave me a rating? So that's the end of Living a Nordic Life for today. 
and I look forward to seeing you next time.